All right, this morning we are kicking off our Advent series, and we're going to be a bit all over the place uh, in this series, kind of covering uh, a lot of different things, looking at a lot of different things all over the place in Scripture, going through and considering uh, different things that God would have for us uh, during, this, uh, during this season, looking at uh, various different aspects of the Christmas story. Here at Providence, we have a firm conviction that we, uh, we say almost every year, I think, that the Christmas story uh, is really the heart of the story that the Bible uh, is telling overall, and that uh, what we say often this time of year is that the Christmas story is much, much bigger than Christmas Day. In fact, this week, I was, we were doing our, our Jesse Tree devotion at home with our family, going through things and talking about with them, and, and we were discussing how the Christmas story really began all the way back in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. From the very beginning, this was the plan, and this is where God was heading. The Christmas story begins in the very first pages of Scripture. This series, I think, will reflect that, that the Christmas story goes further back and then goes long into the future beyond this. It will reflect that there is much for us to consider about the nature of Christmas. And now we will take some time to look at the Christmas story itself, the, the more traditional text that maybe you associate with the Christmas story. We will do that. Uh, but this morning, what I want to do is I want to kind of back up just a little bit. I want to I back up just a little bit, and I want to go a little bit in the, the past, go back a little bit, and kind of uh, understand this idea of, of Advent and the Advent story that we've been talking about, about uh, a longing and, and all of those type of things, things that don't make any sense if you think that Jesus' story began whenever an angel showed up to Mary. Instead, what I want to do is I want to go back a little bit, and I want to look at uh, a lot of different things. And my hope is that this morning can kind of calibrate us for the next few weeks as we prepare our hearts for the joy of what Christmas truly is and what God has done uh, in these days. So you can open up to Isaiah chapter 43 this morning. Isaiah chapter 43 will be our text. And as you turn there, I want to ask, have any of you ever had a, a moment? Have any of you ever had uh, something happen or, or, or maybe a, a prolonged thing that you, you took in and you would say that it took your breath away. Maybe literally like you gasp and, and it took your breath away. Not, and I'm not talking about like somebody jumped around the corner and scared you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you, you kind of take something in and it, it so moves you that you are, you, you have your breath taken away that when you saw it it made you it made you gasp or or just take things in in delight maybe even pause for a second where you had the, uh, forgot the the space and time that you were in i wonder how many times you've had that type of moment now, by definition, those moments are rare. Uh, most of us, if we have had any, are at least able to count them on one hand the number of times that that has happened. But you know, in those moments, you are completely captivated. And the difference in these moments is usually not that you have learned something new it's usually not something that you didn't see coming. Instead, it's something that you saw coming, but then when it actually happened, the experience of it was so far beyond what you could have imagined. 
The difference is really more about experiencing something for the first time, about being a part of something and truly taking in something as compared to uh, really just being surprised by something. I wonder if you can think of some moments like that for you. Perhaps it was the first time that you set foot in Neyland Stadium. I know some people did that. I used to work as an usher, and I would, I would stand there at the, uh, the, the portal where the, the folks would come in. Of course, you have your old-timers that you know, and he sits right over here, and he's going to bring out his whiskey somewhere about halfway through the second half. And you know that he's over there, and, and he's, got, he's got his stuff. And you've got this other guy over here that, that used to play football, and his knees are bad, and he can't make it up there, so you've got to help him up the, the stadium to get to his seats. But then you have the first-timers, the rookies. Now, those are usually the ones that show up for the, the lesser games because somebody said, hey, you can have my tickets because I don't really care about seeing, uh, seeing Tennessee play this team or whatever. And they show up at these games, and most people at those games are kind of like, eh, whatever, this is going to be whatever it is, it's fine. But these people that are showing up and walking into the stadium for the first time, you can see it on their face. Their eyes get big. The first thing they do when they walk in is not look down at the field, but they look up and they see how big the stadium is. And then they look down and they see how green the grass is and the orange and white checkerboards. And then they just stand there. And of course, as an usher, my job is to keep the traffic moving. They got to keep, they got to keep rolling. They can't back things up. But I always wanted to give everybody just a moment to take it in because you only get that moment one time. But it happens. It happened all the time. Maybe, it's, maybe you, you went to a Major League Baseball stadium. I remember the first time I went to Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta, and I saw, I walked in, and I, and, and I saw and was just taken aback, blown away by that. Or maybe it was something else, more personal. Maybe it was when your bride walked down the aisle or when your child was born. Maybe it's whenever you, you took a, a hike to the, the peak to, to LeConte and you're able to take in the views that are up there. Or maybe you've gone out west or maybe even you've gone over to, to Europe or to Asia and you've been able to take in a, a view that is unparalleled and bring that in and, and look at those things. Maybe uh, like Emily and I have had the opportunity to, get, to go to New York and you've been able to go up to Freedom Tower, one of those moments where you're able to take in a whole city like that and it can kind of just leave you in awe. I wonder if you can think of some times like that for you where that has happened. You see, for all of these things that I've talked about, you can see, at least on some level, a picture. You can Google it. You can look at it on the internet. You have an idea of even what it's going to look like whenever your, your bride walks down the aisle. You have these things in your head, but when you experience it, it's different. It feels different. It, it, it changes you in somehow. It, 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 it captivates you in a way that you can't explain. I want to show you a picture that is the, the perfect capture of what I'm talking about. Go ahead and put this picture up here. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of our favorite pictures of Isaiah from when he was little. So he's, I think, just barely, like I, one or two there. I don't know. He's, he's young. He's little. Right, so I think he's I think he's just turned one. Can anybody guess what it is that I mean? You can see, like every part of him is taken aback by what he sees right here. So he's got his hand over his mouth. He, I mean, at first his mouth kind of fell open. He put his hand over his mouth, and I want you to know he sat there like that for a solid three or four, maybe five minutes. This was not a, oh my goodness, and then he puts it down. Like, he didn't move. He was transfixed. 
Does anybody want to take a guess at what it is that had him so captivated? Disney on ice has got it. That is what had him so captivated. He was blown away by Disney on ice. It absolutely, uh, it absolutely floored him. Now, he had some idea of what was coming. I mean, I don't know what, what kind of idea a one-year-old can have, but he had at least some idea. He'd seen the, the TV, and he'd, he'd seen some of this stuff before. He had, but when, when this came and he saw it, Man, it changed him. He was mesmerized, sitting there like that with his hand over his mouth. This, friends, what I want you to kind of ingrain in your head here, this is beholding. When we say, come behold, this is, at least in in my mind, the picture that I have uh, for me. He's not watching the show. I'm watching the show, kind of, right? I'm, I'm watching the show. He's not looking on. He's not even just focused on the show, which is amazing for a one-year-old. You, you understand that, right? He's not even just that. He is transfixed. Every part of him is fully committed to taking in what is happening in front of him. This is the picture I want you to keep in your head and in your heart as we go through this. Or maybe you can come up with a, a similar moment in your own life and you can say, no, I, I know exactly what that means to behold. As we talk about beholding the next few weeks, this is the idea I want us to have in mind. I can think of no better word to describe what Advent is about than behold. It is all about beholding something. It is the dialing in of our hearts into a a level of clarity about our suffering, about our broken, glory-starved, sin-sick world. And then once we see that with clarity, we take that set of lenses and we go to Jesus and we move to the, to the, the manger and we move to that scene and then we see the hope that he can bring to all of that. That's how John John tried to communicate that to us. He says in John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld His glory. That's what this series will be about, beholding His glory. Just like Moses in the book of Exodus when we looked at that and Moses pleads with God, just show me your glory. Show me just, just a piece of your glory. Give me an idea of what your glory is. And God says, hide yourself in a rock. See me as I pass by. But we're not going to be talking about hiding in a rock. We're not going to be talking about the, the, back, the back parts of God going by. We're going to be talking about the fullness of God. That same God all wrapped up in a baby. In Isaiah 43, we are in the middle of some beautiful poetry written to the people of God during a very difficult time. The nation of Israel had been split into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And, and they had all been, uh, on some level, taken, uh, taken into to exile or completely, completely uh, gone. 
The people had been taken into exile by the Babylonians, and this once great nation had been brought to ruin, much like the beginning of the book of Exodus. They were asking the same questions. Where is God? Who is God? How did this God let this happen? If this is the same God of the Exodus who, who freed his people from the hand of Pharaoh, where is he now, and why are we being led into captivity by the Babylonians? And this is at least in part why Isaiah is writing. This portion of the book of Isaiah, this middle portion, is primarily about comforting the people as they head into exile to tell them, you head to exile now, but there is a day coming where God will deliver you. It is a comforting message about how God has not forgotten them and how he is with them in the midst of their suffering and their destruction, even in the midst of the worst times, God is still there and has not forgotten. So then when we get to Isaiah 43, we see this piece of poetry, and we get to hear God speak to his people and give them a message of hope. So look with me in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. This is what God says. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. That is a great way to start when you feel like a forgotten person. To be reminded that we are still his. That they are still his. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. That should sound familiar to you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom and Cush and Seba in exchange for you. This is beautiful poetry about the love of God and the message that He wants to communicate to His people. In spite of their current situation, He is still there. He has not forgotten in fact, he's looking out for them even now. Even as they walk through the fire, he looks out for them. He tells them that he has called them out, that he has redeemed them. He reminds them that they are his. He will walk through fire with them. He will protect them in the midst of their struggles and in their strife. Skip down with me to verse 16. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse and army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. That's the introduction for this God and what he's about to say. Does it sound familiar to you? As we reflect back on the book of Exodus and we see this wonderful, powerful God and all that we, that we saw and how He worked and how mighty He was, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior, and they lie down and they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. And then we get really, really strange thing that God says. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. 
Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. This passage is so good with the words of Exodus ringing in our ears that God made a path through the sea, that He laid armies to rest, that He delivered His people so utterly and completely. This God is the one that is with them. And as great and as mighty as this God is, as tremendous as His works were, you can forget them all. You can forget about all of them. The same God that delivered you before, He's about to do something you've never seen. So buckle your seatbelt and hang on. Pay attention, because this is going to be good. Does that seem like strange advice to you? Think about how many times just in the book of Exodus, while we were still in the book of Exodus, let alone if you keep reading throughout the Old Testament, think about how many times that Moses has to remind his people about the amazing, powerful works that God did in their midst. All throughout the Bible, there are commands for people to go back to Exodus and to remember what happened there. So how is it that Isaiah can bring this message to God's people now, especially his people that are in exile? Doesn't it seem to you like they should be, they should be kind of taking that message of Exodus and taking it to heart right now? As they march off into exile, as they are being led by the Babylonians, I can think of, a, a listen, as a preacher, I'm telling you right now, I'm getting up on a rock and I'm saying, look, we've been here before, people. We know what God can do. Just have faith in God. And yet here Isaiah brings this message and the message is forget about those things. Forget about what he has done. Forget about those other things. Don't go back to the book of Exodus. Don't go back to the times where he thoroughly wiped out Pharaoh. Don't go back to the times where he destroyed the Egyptian army so you could be free. Now he says, I'm going to make roads where they do not exist. And rivers where they do not run. I'm going to make undomesticated animals bow and worship me. And I'm going to sustain my people. He says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. This is a big thing that he's doing. If he can take what's done in Exodus and say, you know what? That's nothing compared to what's coming. You don't even need to remember that because I can tell you what I'm about to do. This thing is amazing. And then he says in verse 21, it's so easy for us just to skip over this, but I think it's so important for us to remember. Verse 21, why is he going to do this new thing? For his praise. So let's keep reading and see if we can figure out some hint as to what this new thing is. And I'll tell you, Isaiah doesn't flat out tell us for a while. It's the nature of poetry. It doesn't read like, hey, this is what's about to happen. Hey, this is what's going to happen. It, it, it reads more uh, artistically and it gives us so much more uh, 
so much more imagery to go with it. But let's see if we can get a hint just if we keep reading here. So verse 22. God says, Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been very weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities. God calls them out. Before he tells them what he's going to do, he wants to make it abundantly clear that he doesn't have to do it at all. Their offerings and their atonement has been minimal. But their sins, their sins have been far from it. Their sins have piled up in front of God. They have burdened him and they have wearied him. Their sacrifices have been few, but their sins have been many. I'm sure many of you can relate. I know I can. So what is God's response to this? Verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. So what he's saying is, let's, let's talk about this. Let's make your case why this should be true, Israel. Your first father sinned and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. So what is, that, what is that saying? That is basically God saying, listen, we can argue and we can talk about what is warranted and what is not. But here's the deal. Your fathers sinned. Your mediators that came after them have sinned. You have sinned, your sins pile up before me. There is no argument you can make for me to do a new thing in your midst. There is nothing you can say that says, God, you owe this to us. He owes us nothing. He owed Israel nothing. And yet right in the middle of that, he gives us a hint as to what this new thing is that he's going to do. It was verse 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Does it not strike you as completely odd when you read through that? There is the long indictment of how weak their sacrifices and their offerings have been, of how mighty and large their sins have been, of how sinful their forefathers have been, and how sinful they are, and right smack in the middle of it, God says, for no apparent reason that he blots out their transgressions and he will not remember their sins. And why does it say that he, will not, that he will do this? Again, for his own sake. Before it was for his praise, now he does this for his own sake. But how is he going to do this? How is he going to do this? It doesn't say. He simply says that he will do it. And while God's people would have 
would have heard this as a comforting word in their exile in Babylon. We too hear it as a comforting word for us as we identify with God's people so clearly. Our sins pile up. Our sins are many, but His mercy is greater. Verse 25 is the riddle of the Old Testament. How does a God, the same God from the book of Exodus, who Moses can't, can't even look at, his backside's barely passing by without having his face uh, illuminated and having to, to wear a veil, how does this same God who is so holy, he cannot be in the presence of sin, how does this same God simply let a people that have sinned so greatly against him, that have neglected him, how does he let them off? Scott free. How can he do that? Isaiah doesn't really answer that for us. He kind of leaves that as a pregnant question. But what he does do is he points us forward to look for a man that would be able to do these things. And he would be able to do this because of his sufferings. Six times in the book of Isaiah, what we see are what, what would be called the, the, the songs or the, the poems of the suffering servant. Isaiah describes a suffering servant that would come and he would be the one to be able to make sense of this riddle. Turn over to Isaiah 53, just a few chapters over. Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should, that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the answer to the riddle of the Old Testament, to the riddle that Isaiah proposes in chapter 43. How God can look on a sinful people and He can say, though your sins are many, I will remember them no more. How can He do that? Because of the suffering servant who, had the, who God has taken all of that sin, that mountain of sin, and he has placed it on this suffering servant. He has placed it on this lamb. He has placed it on this one who would come and he would endure. He would take on. He would have all of the iniquities placed on him. And he would be crushed for it. He would be pierced for it. But that chastisement would bring us peace. And those wounds would heal us. That's the Christmas story. Jesus would come and He would become that suffering servant. Not at all what the people of Israel were looking for. 
but he would come. And this is the new thing that God is doing. This is the new thing. This is the thing that we are to behold. You see, when this servant would come, almost no one would notice. Some shepherds, a few guys following a star, a couple of close relatives. That's about it. Many were looking. Many were hoping. Many were singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. They were hoping, they were longing for this, this person to come that would deliver them, that would set them free, that would do this new thing. But the thing that they wanted was too much like the old thing. The thing that God said, forget about those things. You see what so many people want. You can see it in Zechariah's prayer. What so many people wanted was for God to come and do the same thing He had done before. To deliver His people out of captivity just like He had done with Pharaoh and with Egypt. Now Israel was, in, in the time when Jesus was born and when Isaiah was writing this, I, Israel is in captivity again. Or at the very least, under an oppressive rule from an oppressive government. Even if they aren't in full captivity, they are in captivity by any other name. A government ruling over them that does not allow them to do what they want, where they have to give deference over to someone else. And what they wanted was a military ruler that would show up and that would set them free in a way that, that they were set free before they would slaughter their enemies. They would destroy, there would be an uprising and Israel would take its rightful place among the nations and it would be, it would be looked upon and awe. Oh, this is what they were looking for. But that was too much like the old thing. And God was about to do a new thing. Something far greater. And the old would pass away. And there would be an establishment of a new covenant with God's people. You see, the Christmas story began long before Mary and Joseph. And it was about a lot more than ruling a, a, a ruling government over God's people. That's too much about the kingdoms of this world. But when Jesus came, He was here to establish and to set up a new kingdom. That this new kingdom would now break into our time. But this kingdom wouldn't be like the others. And it wouldn't be like the old thing. It would be a new thing. It was about delivering people from the weight of their sin, from the emptiness of their hearts, from the shallowness of their lives, from their inability to see the glory of God. So He came that they might behold it. That they might be able to, to look to Jesus and behold the glory of God in the form of a man. As I said earlier, I can think of no better word to describe what Advent is about. It is about beholding. About dialing our hearts into a level of clarity about suffering, broken, sin-sick, glory-starved people. And then, once we have that lens on, we see the hope that Jesus brings to that. 
And it's not just the world out there that I'm talking about either. It's your world. It's my world. It's what you go home to this afternoon. It's what you, what you wake up to when you roll out of bed tomorrow. It's the thoughts in your head. It's the frustrations in your heart. It's the suffering you endure. It's the sickness you hate. It's the loneliness that can engulf you. It's the sin that you are so quick to entertain. That world is the world that he came to. Jesus brings hope to that world. And that hope begins by beholding. I said it whenever we were, we were looking at, at Moses. What I said was discipleship begins with beholding. And that phrase has, has just rattled around in my head ever since I said it that morning. Ever since I read that and I, and I thought through that, that is how discipleship begins. That is where following Jesus begins. It begins by beholding. And for many of us, that beholding is a beholding of something new. Perhaps for some of you, what's new this Christmas is that, it, that maybe it would mean something to you from a spiritual standpoint for the first time ever. That it's never meant much to you from a spiritual standpoint because frankly, Jesus has never meant that much to you. Maybe what God wants to do is that He wants to change your heart and that He wants to make you new. Do you know that's how the Bible talks about being a Christian? A new creation? For some of you in your life right now, what's going on is God is telling you, He is saying, behold, I want, I want to do something new. I'm going to do something new. And the question that I have for you is, have you been made new? Or do you feel like the same old dirty person living in the same old dirty sins, carrying out the same old dirty lie? Friends, God wants to do something new. For others, God is wanting to do something new in your life too. The book of Revelation, we'll look at this here in a few weeks, it says that God will make all things new. But in the meantime, we're also told that that salvation, our salvation, those of us that say we are followers of Christ, that would call ourselves Christian, that that walk is considered the newness of life. This is what we say when we baptize people, that they are buried with Him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life forever. I wonder how many of you have reached a point in your spiritual walk where you just kind of are where it's been a long time since you feel like God has done something new. You love Jesus, kind of. You sin more than you'd like, not as much as you could. Your walk is just kind of, eh. It has its moments, but overall you just kind of go day to day. I know I fall in those ruts a lot. Where it's just kind of, you're just kind of trekking along. And the next thing you know, you look up and it's been weeks and it's been months, years. 
And you can't remember the last time you were convicted over your sin. You can't remember the last time your heart was moved by the glory of God. You can't remember the last time you read a piece of Scripture and it broke your heart. You can't remember the last time you read a piece of Scripture and your heart exalted over it and you celebrated it. You just kind of go. I think God is telling the people like this, the Those of you that would say that's you, those of us that would identify with that, I think what he is saying is that he wants to do something new in your life this morning, today, right now, in this season, in this this place of Advent, this season of anticipation. He wants to do a new thing to move you beyond that sin that you've been dealing with, to move you beyond the envy you've been feeling, the lust you've been entertaining, the greed you've been harboring, the bitterness you've been nursing, the anger you've been brewing, that thing that you keep letting just kind of hang around for too long and you can't seem to shake it and you won't deal with it and it keeps pulling you back and dragging you down. God wants to do something new. You have been defined by whatever that is, by your sin, by your your lackadaisicalness, by your lack of effort, by your, your just kind of haphazard, mediocre approach to the glory of God. God is saying He wants to do something new for you this morning. And what was His command to the people of Israel when He said He was going to do something new? If they wanted to see this new thing that He was going to do, what did they need to do? They needed to behold. God told them, behold, Stop. Pay attention. Be drawn in. Quit being so distracted. Quit letting all that this world throws at you, all that Satan puts in front of you to pull you away, stop and behold the glory of God in the Son of God. Stop and behold I want to invite you to spend the next few weeks not being defined by your gifts, by your bank accounts, by your busyness, by your parties. But find time, make time to behold. And I am absolutely convinced in this season and in any season of life, I am 100% convinced of this, that when we behold God, we will be changed. He will change you. Now, He's not going to change you if you say, I'm going to beat this sin, and I'm going to get through this, and I'm going to stop doing this thing that has defined me for so long. He's not going to change you because that's you. Do you want to stop being mired down in the muck of your own sin? Then behold Him, and He will change you we get stuck in sins not because we love the sin so much but because we don't love god enough and how do we change that it begins by beholding one of my favorite authors jared wilson he's got a book called the imperfect disciple and he says it he said says it this way when you struggle to believe beholding is better than behaving When you struggle to believe, beholding is better than behaving. 
And he goes on to say, don't fake your walk. Don't trick yourself into thinking that you love Jesus because you do a few good things, because you, you, you take an ornament off of an angel tree, or because you, you, you give a little extra money, or because you show up on Sunday, or because you, you, you go to a front porch community, or because you read your Bible this month. Don't trick yourself into thinking that you love Jesus because you do those things. Do those things because you have beheld Him and because His glory has propelled you to do them. Behold the glory of God and then see if your behavior doesn't follow. That's, that's what the Bible holds out for us. For all of us this morning, this is my call to you. Behold Him in our homes, in our families, in our personal Bible study, in our discipleship groups, in our church. Let's spend our lives together beholding Jesus. I can think of nothing better for us to do. When was the last time that you did that? When was the last time that you had your hand over your mouth captivated by what God had done. Not just what He had done by giving you something and answering the prayer where you asked for something, but, but you, you had your hand over your mouth captivated by the fact that your sins were many, but His mercy was more. Let's spend our lives doing that together. Will you pray with me? Father, we confess that far too often we are we are captivated by such weak, pitiful things. Our hearts are captivated by Disney on ice, by a little bit of extra money a little bit of extra food, a little bit of extra drink, a few extra clicks on the internet. Our hearts are captivated by such weak, weak imposters. Fathers, we spend the next few weeks looking at a a baby that was born, may our hearts be captivated. May we truly behold the glory of the only begotten Son. May it change us forever.